0: everyone, and kut There's a story of a rabbi who is speaking to his congregation and he sees on the front row that there is a man who has fallen asleep and then his head falls on the shoulder of his wife. The rabbi stops in the middle of speaking and says to the wife, Madam, could you please wake your husband? And the woman replies, you know what, rabbi, you put him to sleep, why don't you wake him up? The truth is, I have no idea who I'm putting to sleep as I speak right now. But there is a deeper idea embedded in the joke, an idea that serves, I believe, as a warning to the person who is speaking, that perhaps what we say isn't as effective as we think it is, that what sounds good on the inside of the speaker's heart isn't necessarily what will capture the heart of the person who is listening. It is like what the poet Auden said about poetry in his obituary to Yeats. Poetry, Auden wrote, makes nothing happen, which is a cynical and sad idea, but perhaps not entirely true. I still want to believe that a word spoken can carry us to places that can continue to surprise us. And so I approach this moment, which is a warm moment, Because as Yuskar is a moment of loss, we are all now surrounded by deep loss. Which isn't to say that the loss of someone's job, or their dinner at their favorite restaurant spot, or the loss of your routine is anything that could equal the loss of not having your mother, or your father, or your spouse, or your sibling, or God forbid, your child. None of it is. But if any kind of loss opens the heart to understanding what it means to have and then lose, then we are living in a moment that has many open hearts. It is like what the ancient rabbis said of their greatest colleague, of Rabbi Akiva. They said that his heart was ki It was like open as an amphitheater. Because Rabbi Akiva had suffered so much, he could understand what suffering was. It is like what the ancient rabbi said about Abraham, about Abraham. Because at the end of Abraham's life, we are told that he was blessed with all things. To which you have to ask, how could it be that at the end of your life that you are blessed with everything? I mean, at some point, your back starts hurting and your knees hurt too. There comes that time when you realize that you have to stop eating after a certain hour in the evening. And then you realize that you can't eat all the things that you like. Or if you can, you certainly can't eat as much of it as you used to like to. Abraham had lost home many times. And the people he loved too. He had faced great danger. And estranged from his two beloved sons, he had lived to see the family that he built fall apart in his hands. And all the while, he worked to create a tradition that the world wasn't ready for yet. And so what exactly was the everything that he was blessed with? And so some commentators say that Abraham was blessed with a daughter after having so many sons. Finally, he had a daughter. Another commentator says that the everything that Abraham was blessed with was that he was given by God a stone that hung from his neck that would heal any wound and comfort any pain. But a medieval medieval scholar says that the everything that Abraham was blessed with was that he had lived long enough to see everything that there is to see, literally blessed to see everything, light and dark and good and bad, tragedy and triumph and joy and pain. Which is to say that to see life in its entirety it's a kind of blessing because it means that we are experiencing living it, really. It's an idea that became clear to me when I read, the anti- when I read a book named Anti-Memoirs, the autobiography of a French writer, adventurer, critic named Andre Moreau. From fighting on the Republican side of the Spanish Civil War to being captured by the Gestapo in the Second World War, to serving in the government of de Gaulle, to writing prize-winning novels, Moreau had a colorful and successful life. And his book begins with a pointed story. During the war, Moreau had escaped from the Germans in the company of a local parish priest. And when the two crossed paths many years later, Moreau asked his former companion, the priest, what he has learned about human nature from all those years in the confession booth. And two things I've learned, the priest said. First, that most people are much unhappier than you would actually ever think. And second, the fundamental fact that there are so few grown-ups in this world. If Moreau had asked me, in addition to the priest, I would have added how many people try to talk their way out of the pain they feel. Going as far back as the Greeks, humans have been raised with a deep drive to control everything that we live with, with the presumption that we can control it, much of what happens to us in life. And with that firmly in our hearts, we embark on education believing that it will be given to financial security. We brag that we have the best doctors at our disposal, believing that we will then be given to long health, and then with money and health and love securely in hand we are convinced that we'll have happy and good lives. More times than I would ever want to recall did a 40-something person sit sit with me after seeing a doctor and say, how could this be happening to me? Because our younger selves see life in terms of a beginning, a middle, and then a resolution. But somewhere along the way, perhaps usually in the middle, we realize that everyone lives with things that may not turn out so well after all. At the middle, at some point, has to become the resolution, not at the end. And how we make meaning of that resolution becomes the great task of our lives. A year ago at this time, I would have had to conjure examples to prove to you the extent of how unknown, of how uncontrollable life actually is. But even then, as I would be talking, there would be a whisper in the back of my head that would be saying, but Aaron, do you actually believe that? Because after all, I can travel when I want to travel. I can go see the people that I want to go see. If I have a cough or if I have a fever, I don't worry. I rest, I go see a doctor, I fill a script, and I know that I'll be back in my feet to travel when I want to travel or to see the people that I want to see. But no more. Usually on a Yizkor morning, we are here recalling the people we have lost. And it can't help but feel disconnected to what is taking place outside of here. It's like we step outside of the envelope of the sanctuary and we head outside after Yuska and services. And what was the regular world of people running to work, doing their errands and appointments, was all in full flow and we merge into it. And all it took to burst this immense bubble was a microbe no more than a tenth of a micron wide. And now doesn't it feel that there is no wall separating this truth that we feel here from the outside? Doesn't it feel like this is the truth that we all should be merging with, not the traffic outside of our parking lot, which is no more, by the way, because the streets are empty? There's nothing more to merge with to head to the Allen Road. With the abundance of time now in my hands, as I'm sure you have had too, I recently went back to my books to read something, well, actually reread something. Because I always find myself in a rush, even when I'm reading. I'm thinking of the next book that's waiting for me on my desk, or a sermon that I need to write. And what idea can I draw from this book right now? So I drew out this small book, actually not a book per se, but the bound and published text of the last speech the Israeli writer Amosos gave before he died which was three weeks after giving the speech. If you have read any of his books, the most famous of which was Tale of Love in Darkness, which was made into a movie with Natalie Portman, you know that Amos Oz writes and speaks with a clarity that is deeply moving. His last speech was no different, woven with an electric fusion of ideas and grave concerns. He tells a story years back while speaking in Paris that he met a Palestinian intellectual. The first thing the Palestinian told him when he shook his hand was, I am from Lifta. Now Lifta is an abandoned village on the southwestern part of Jerusalem, nestled into the deep hillsides, just past Mozart. Before Romema. you pass it on the way into the city from Tel Aviv. In biblical times, Lifta sat on the scene between the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and it was called My Niftoach. In 1948, during the War of Israeli Independence, the Arab residents of Lifta either abandoned it or they were forced out. Today, it is much as it was on the fateful day when they packed up and left. The man continued to say to Amos Oz, I want to go to my house in Lifta. You should know, he told him. That my office and my apartment are filled with pictures of Lifta and my home there. And Amos looks at him. The man is maybe 30-something years old. And he asks him, have you ever been there? And the man says no. He admitted that he had never lived there. He had never visited there. Paris was too nice and he had his work there. He wanted Lifta, he said, for a summer home. He wanted to see the smell and the fields and hear the sheep grazing on the hills. And he went further and said to Amosos, You should know that your people will know no peace. They will have no rest until I get my home in Lifta back, because it is mine and I will not allow anyone to take it from me. And a stillness settled in between them. And then the Israeli writer, Amos Oz, said to him, You'll never get it back, and it's not because of the Zionists. If even tomorrow the Jewish people decided it's been all one big mistake, if we should take the walking stick and the backpack, if we left all the keys on the table and departed, you would still never get your home in Lifta back. Amos Oz tells him, that if every descendant of those thousand or so original villagers all decided to come back, there would be a total population of Lifta of 20,000 people. You would have to take back, he told them, all the old homes and destroy them. All the old homes in your pictures would be no longer standing because you would have to build immense apartments. You would need a bank and a supermarket or three, a clinic and a gas station. You would need parking lots and traffic lights. Don't you see, he told him, you can't go back because it's not there. It's like the first person you fell in love with. It's okay to dream about them and reminisce, even longingly. You can write songs and pen poems, even publish a book about them. But you can never go back to find them because they aren't there. Because you can never go back, because none of it is there anymore. You are searching in space for what's lost in time. What of it that survives lives inside of you. Those of us who honor the memories of our loved ones with this moment of Yisker, we know how painfully true those words are. We know that there is no going back we know that there is no reversing we know that we are left with what is taken and our lives are a strategy of managing empty spaces we know what it is to have a wish to be somewhere with someone but it is unable to be there Well we now have our memories strengthened by our resolve that we will forget no detail not of their voice, not their hair, not their touch, not their smile, and not their love. Which is to say that the poet Auden was probably right. It's true. Poetry makes nothing happen. But on Yusker, we know that love and memory do. Chag Sameach.